So if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 10. The title of my message is Footsteps of Fear. And if you've ever watched a horror movie, and, and I haven't, I, I just can't do that. Um, you know what I mean. The, either the thought or the sound that someone is behind you that's a, who's a danger. When I was in seminary, I worked as a security guard uh, for a large uh, corporate office near, near the seminary. Uh, they didn't give us guns. It was just walkie-talkies. But every month, every uh, hour, we would do rounds throughout the building. Large office complex. I think they had four buildings there. And uh, one shift a week, I did a midnight to eight in the morning shift. And uh, we were, they liked to hire seminary students and we liked to be hired because during the time we weren't um, doing rounds or other responsibilities, we were able to study or read or whatever. And uh, how many of you are old enough to remember the author Frank Peretti? Okay. So Peretti wrote um, like fantasy stories about the spiritual warfare that's taking place out of sight uh, between God's holy angels and demons. And they were very vivid. And uh, one night in my AM shift, I was reading, I don't know if it was this present darkness or piercing the darkness, but it was really scary. It's four in the morning. It's time to go on a round. Now, the office building, um, every cubicle had an outside wall and uh, interior walls between the next office on either side. But then the corridor was out here and it was all glass. So you could see, as you walk down the corridor, you could see in every, every office. And there were, there were a few dim lights overhead that would provide lighting for us at night. So I finished a particularly scary section of the book, put it down, went on my round. And about two-thirds of the way through that round, I thought there was something behind me. And I ran through the building. I mean, I ran through the building wide open, got back to my desk. I didn't really check anything on the way. Got back to the desk. I'm, And I want to talk about fear this morning as it leads into a bigger picture. Namely about who God is, what he's like. There was a book that was published this week, a children's book, and its title was, What is God Like? What is God Like? The outline for the book was sketched by Rachel Held Evans, if you know that name. Uh, before she passed away in very uh, young age, uh, two years ago, 37. Uh, Rachel grew up in an evangelical Christian home, but as she uh, got later in adulthood, um, uh, she drifted off into what is today known as progressive Christianity and became a darling of progressives because she loved to stick her finger in the eye of those who still believe all that the Bible teaches. Well, after she passed away, the Responsibility to complete this book was turned over to her very good friend, uh, Matthew Paul Turner. And this is what he says to children in the end of the book. Whenever you aren't sure what God is like, think about what makes you feel safe, what makes you feel brave, 
and what makes you feel loved. And that is what God is like. I want you to think about that. Parents, you're reading this book to these children and you're telling them what you imagine is what God is like. Unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that has been promoting increasingly a kind of um, um, create your own God package more and more, not just in the culture, but among the people of God. And we hear things like, my God is not like that. My God wouldn't do that. My God would do this. I, I don't think of God like that. And God looks at us and he says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's from the book of Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. In other words, if we are simply going to conjure up who God is and how he works out of our own imaginations, out of I wish, I mean let's be honest, how many of us have never said, God, I wish you were like this instead of like this? Or, or God, I wish you had done this instead of this. But the fact of the matter is that God is very different from us. And when we forget that, we reduce our worship of him and we lose the great Hope that he is. Now don't misunderstand me. God has come down to our level in many ways in Jesus Christ. He, he was made just like his brothers and sisters. So that he could be a substitute that we need. And yet, never sinned, right? Tempted in every way just as we are but never sinned. So he's not fully like us. And nor is God and his plans. The next three sermons we're going to wrestle with are about the Bible's claim that God is sovereign. Now, everybody that I know who knows the word sovereign, who is a Christian, would say, yes, God is sovereign. But just what does that mean? A sovereign is a ruler, is a king. But to what extent is he a king? How far does his embrace go how 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 much does he influence what other people do or don't do or think or say and my prayer is that in these three weeks that God would become bigger than he ever has been to you and maybe as we're going to concentrate on today maybe even put some of your fears to flight and who isn't afraid of something You've been to the dentist lately? No, I don't want to go to the dentist. And that's not just a seven-year-old, that's the 37-year-old, right? What if I can't make any friends at this new school I go to? What if I won't be popular? I'm 28 or 30. What if I never find a woman to marry or a man to marry? 
Or what if I get married and then I hate marriage? We've been trying so long. What if we can't have children? What if I get cancer or MS? What if the house catches fire? If you, um, if you t- picked up a sermon outline this morning when you came in, I want you to write something down on there. If you don't find something else to write on, maybe you have, like I do, an app on your phone that you can take notes on. Just going to have you write down a couple of things. I want you to jot down maybe the top two or top three fears that you have in life. And don't tell me you don't have any. Nobody else is going to see this, just, be t- just you. So just jot them down. I'll give you about a minute. Two or three fears that you have. I have mine in my head. And even if you think them, I encourage you to write them down because I'm going to have, something, have you do something with them at the end. <clears throat> For um, about 10 years, I battled pretty severe depression. And uh, nobody knew about it except Betty, and she, even she didn't know the extent of it until late in that time. You know, who does a pastor go to and admit that he is consumed by fears and anxiety and inadequacy? And there were several things that changed all of that, 2003, 2004, 2005. And one was that God grew bigger in my eyes. And as he did, I discovered that my fears grew smaller. And maybe it will do that for some of you as well. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to read a couple of verses from what Jesus had to say. Father, I can't see you, but I can picture you in the throne room of heaven, seated on the throne, and all the trappings of worship around you, four creatures that aren't here on earth, nothing like them. 24 elders, thousands upon thousands of the heavenly hosts calling out in worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we sing with them, holy, holy, holy. We worship you because there is none like you. There is, you, you, are, you are with us and similar to us, and yet you are transcendent. You are out there in many ways different from us. 
and we worship not only the likeness that is true of you, but the difference that is true of you. And I see in that picture in heaven, you hold a scepter in your hand and you have a crown on your head. And what we're going to explore these three weeks is just how big that crown is. Over what does it rule and reign? Over whom? And to what degree? Is it a compact crown with a a smattering of jewels and crushed velvet? Or is it a big, magnificent crown covered with jewels and far more majestic than we could have ever imagined? We want to know not just who you are, by how we think about you or like to think about you, but we want to know who you say you are. And we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, beginning of verse 28. He's speaking to his disciples here. He's sending them out on a a mission trip And he's giving them some instructions and also just making some observations. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. In other words, you're going to be facing opposition. You're going to encounter people that want to to hurt you or even kill you. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God. Who can destroy both soul and body in hell? What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Now that's an unfortunate translation on the part of the um, new NLT translators. If you have a more literal translation like the ESV, it says, not a single sparrow can fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, it's not just father knows about it, but that rather father has caused it. And the very heads on your hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. We'll stop there. Now, I think Jesus lays out a very tidy sermon in these few verses, and so I'm going to steal his main points. The first one is, don't fear them, people. Don't fear them. The second one is, fear God. And the third one is, fearing God kills fear. Don't fear them, fear God, and fearing God kills fear. So he says, don't be afraid of them those who want to kill your body. Does anybody know the most often repeated command in all of scriptures? I'll take a guess. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Over and over in some fashion, don't be afraid. Isn't that glorious? 
that our God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to be afraid. And he knows that if our confidence and reliance is on him, we don't need to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Over and over and over again. I don't really know how many times it's said. I haven't counted. It's one thing I'm going to do in semi-retirement. I'm going to count them someday. Take a fresh Bible and just go through. Uh, Rick Warren says there are 365 times that he says, and I'm like, nah, that just worked to fit in your 365-day devotional. Uh, People say it's between 200 and upper 300s. Don't, don't fear them. Don't fear people who threaten us. And I mean, the, the things that you wrote down, the fears that you have, aren't most of them have people behind them? I, I'm afraid of what my critics are saying behind my back. I'm afraid of the people who are in the other lane driving toward me who might be drunk, high, or inattentive, or asleep. I'm afraid of enemies that plot against me. I'm afraid of the criminals that prowl our streets. I'm, I'm afraid I might get fired. I'm afraid my husband might leave me. My wife might leave me. It's interesting. And a lot of this has happened in my lifetime. That even increasingly, we, our, our fears Uh, want to always have someone to blame. And so even today, what would have once been considered acts of God, we, we look for a human being to blame. And so if your family member gets cancer and dies, you say, well, the family doctor should have caught it earlier. Or the oncologist should have set out a different treatment plan insurers have for years used in their um, paperwork uh, descriptions of tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and so forth as acts of God did you know that's becoming less and less frequent that fewer and fewer insurers actually use that language in their documents acts of God And I think part of the reason is, first of all, it's a culture that's increasingly leaving God in the rearview mirror. And I think it's also because they're seeing a culture who looks to other people as the reason for or the cause of bad things happening. The worst tornado ever to hit the United States in terms of cost, insurance outlays, took place in Joplin, Missouri in 2011. Cut a vicious swath through that town. 158 dead, over 1,100 injured, including a 62-year-old airplane tech at Walmart that day. And in the aftermath, his wife and his daughter filed suit. And this is taken from actual court documents. Oh, by the way, who do you think they filed suit against? Walmart. Yep, Walmart. Defendant Walmart knew or should have known that Joplin store number 59 was located in an area that was at a high risk of tornadoes and violent wind. 
Store officials knew or should have known that the building was, quote, not constructed properly considering this increased risk of violent storms and tornadoes and knew or should have known that there was not a proper emergency plan in place at the store, including a lack of signage and identified safe areas or tornado refuge areas. This is the reason that products cost so much. I could go on a tear here, but I won't. Uh, in Pennsylvania, tort, form, tort reform was a huge issue about 25, 30 years ago. And I was hoping that finally we would bring some sanity to this whole lawsuit business, but politicians got other priorities on their plate, and plus, some of the lawsuit filers vote for them. So, And Jesus says, don't fear them. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think Jesus is saying here, you fear God and it will begin to displace your fears of people. Not the God of our imaginations, but the God as he describes himself in this book. Fear God. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think verse 28 contains both a correction and a warning. And the correction is, don't fear the threats of people. The warning is, what people can do to you is true, awful enough. But these are not eternal things that people can do to you. If somebody crosses the double yellow line and runs head uh, head first into your car, they will kill you. Might. But you're not going to stay dead. And if you know Jesus, voila! If people say bad things about you, it's not eternal. Ten years from now, probably nobody's going to remember it. If you get mugged, you might lose some money. You might get a concussion. Ten years from now, you'll remember it, but it won't have any ongoing effects other than the fear embedded in it. What is of concern, what should be of concern to us who believe in a next life is what takes place there. Where do I spend eternity? Hell is eternal. Jesus said, you fear the one who can send body and soul to hell. Because that's what my father, he's talking about his father. That's what my father can do. And, and, you know, the Bible talks about us fearing the Lord, fearing God. It's not this kind of, for those of us who know Christ, it's not this kind of anxious fear. What's he going to do to me? He's going to punish me. No, no, no. John says in 1 John chapter 4 verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. Meaning the love that Christ has for us, if we are in him, casts out that fear of retribution. 
But there's a fear God as a revere him, be in awe of him, of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. Our fear gets us to run to safety in God's son. But Jesus wants us to know that not to fear him has forever consequences. I, I don't like the thought of someone going to hell. By the way, please don't be one of those people who writes comments under a video where believers and unbelievers alike are commenting about Christianity. And we say something to someone, well, just so you know, buddy, you're going to spend your days in hell. God forgive us for that kind, that should break our hearts. Not have us sticking our finger in somebody's eye. You're going to hell. Should break our hearts. Great theologian R.C. Sproul was asked shortly before his death, what's the most difficult doctrine you have trouble with? And he goes, hell. Should break our hearts. The fact that we don't know a lot of the people that go there doesn't make any difference. Fruit of the Spirit is, begins with what? Fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Not just for those of like faith. Remember Jesus, rich young man, comes to him and says, what, to, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, go sell everything you have, give the proceeds to the poor, then come follow me. And you will have eternal life. Man goes away sorrowful. He doesn't want to do that. Jesus looked at him. The Bible says he looked at him and loved him. Not just the people who believed what he believed, who were willing to follow him. He looked at him and loved him. The idea of hell and the people who are going to go there should break our hearts. But don't tell Jesus that he's wrong when he says there is a hell. Don't tell Jesus that he's wrong when he says hell is horrible. And don't tell Jesus that he's wrong when he says it's forever. Because Jesus said all of those things. In fact, believing all of that is what drove him to a bloody cross so that he could rescue many from it. And so, if people are big, we should fear them. But Jesus says, make God big, and then we'll fear him. Last point, fearing God kills fear. Let me read again verse 29 following. What's the price of two sparrows, one copper coin? In other words, they're not worth much. Even if you're poor, you can go to the market and buy a couple of sparrows. Not sure what you do with them, but you can buy them. But not a single sparrow, not a single kind of worthless, cheap sparrow can fall to the ground, as I said, apart from your father. He decides when time's up. By the way, does that ring any bells in your mind? about what God said regarding our deaths. Look at Psalm 139, verse 16. Psalm 139, 16. I love this verse. In some ways it makes me feel invincible. 
You saw me, King David writes this, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. In other words, before I was born, God has a book on me and he has all the days that I'm going to live listed in there. And I can't die before that final day comes. Now, when I teach, I have a study I developed over the years on the sovereignty of God. When I teach this, people say, does that mean like if I would go out on Route 30 today and stand in the middle of traffic, you know, all the semis going up and down the road, does that mean that I would live if it's not my day to die? And I'm like, no, that's your day to die. If you're dumb enough to stand out on Route 30, in God's book it says George was dumb enough to stand out on Route 30 on June 20. But this kind of notion, one of the things that we do in the study is at the end of it, I say, what are the big questions that come out of this? And what are the reassurances that we have? Do you know anybody or have you been one of these people who after some awful thing has happened to someone you love? Or maybe to you? Well, not if we're talking just about death. Never mind that. But you think if I just would have done X or if I just wouldn't have done X then they would still be alive. If I would have picked her up earlier or if I would have picked him up later still be alive. There's a day God has put in his book that's the final day. And it doesn't matter what you would have or would not have done. Jesus goes on. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. In other words, he knows everything about you. But he also has the date of your death written down. That says to me that God's more than simply knowledgeable about your life. That he is intimately involved in all of its comings and goings. There's not a thing that you, takes place in your life and God turns around and says, I didn't see that coming. Or, I wasn't involved in that. The God, that God even decides when I die, to me, it, it's incredibly reassuring and tells me that all of the rest of the things in my life, God is intimately involved in as well. It was in the wake of 9-11 attacks and I was still neck deep in depression that I began to read scriptures. I read an article that put me on this journey and I began to read scriptures that I'd read through the Bible many times but I never stopped at these scriptures. I never pondered, well, what, what do they mean? And as I did on this journey, God grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Let me just give you one example, Isaiah chapter 45. God says, I, uh, verse, the end of verse 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. I create the light and make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I send good times and bad times. I am the Lord. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. And I began to see in those days over a period of a year or two, I began to see, I wasn't focused on my fears, but I began to see as God grew bigger, my fears began to grow smaller. Not gone. But as author Veronica Roth mused, I wonder if fears ever really go away or if they just lose their power over us. I wonder if fears ever really go away or if they just lose their power over us. And she's not a believer as far as I know. But I think she's hit the nail on the head. You know, it's interesting, in modern playgrounds, I've noticed something that's missing from most of the ones that I grew up around. You who are older, can you think what's missing in most of today's? Mike got it. Seesaw. Seesaw. It's way too dangerous, I guess. And, and they are. I mean, have you ever been on the receiving end of a seesaw up under here? Yeah, I was. Because the thing about a seesaw is you can't have both people up in the air at the same time, right? You can't have both people down on the ground at the same time. So when your buddy decides he's done and he's going to go swing and he just gets off, it's a rough ride. <laughs> Boom! But what a wonderful picture of the I think the business of fearing God, as that goes up, the other fears begin to lose their power and begin to diminish. Fear of God up, fear of man down. In the title of great book that Pastor Charlie referenced earlier this year, when people are big and God is small. As God becomes bigger, people become smaller. What they can do to us becomes less potent, less powerful. Even the things that are acts of God become less and less powerful. Dan Brown, not an author I would often quote, but he says this in the Da Vinci Code. Men go to far greater lengths to avoid what they fear than to obtain what they desire. Now you've heard all the preachers on this platform admonish us again and again to pursue Jesus Christ. To pursue Jesus Christ. To love him. Not just know that he saved us, but to pursue him and find in him our greatest satisfaction. In other words, to desire him. Now think about that quote again. Men go to far greater lengths to avoid what they fear. And so if you're afraid 
of car crashes, you buy, I think a Volvo is still considered the safest vehicle on the road. If you're afraid of crime, you make sure you're carrying when you go down certain streets. If you're afraid of certain diseases, you make sure that you're at the doctors regularly, get all the routine checkups and more, maybe work out, keep your body extra fit, and so forth. Do you want to live life running from things you're afraid of? Or do you want to live life pursuing and desiring the one who controls everything in life? So if you've written down the fears in your life, here's what I'd like you to do right now. I want you to write across all of those fears in big letters, God through Christ. Therein lies your hope. Therein lies my hope. Because God is not a doctrine to believe, but he is a glorious and beautiful king to trust. One who sits, I mean, it, I imagine yesterday I was practicing this sermon and I, I thought, I can, I can just see the father sitting here on these steps and all of us gathered all around him. You know, his throne's up here. He's gotten down on the steps. In Christ, he's done that. He knows all of us by name. He knows all of our character traits. He knows all of our weaknesses and all of our strengths. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow to us the next day and five years down the road. We're his servants, and yet he knows all of this about us, and he pours out his affections. I mean, the kind of affections that are the stuff of clan legends, ones that in this case are actually true. And then this, this father, this king, sentences his son so that he can free all of these servants. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 6 says, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Your fears won't get chased away just by chipping away at them, reading another self-help book, they're going to get chipped away at, if you know Christ, by the power of knowing the God who rules all things. And we're going to get more into the weeds of that in the next couple of sermons. The bigger God becomes, the smaller your fears become. Father, that is such good news. So good to know that you are greater than all things even our fears. So good to know that even the people we're afraid of, you're in charge of. So good to know that the things that come our ways, like earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, cancer, other dread diseases, you rule them. That there's never a time that you look at life that's unfolding before us and you have your hands tied behind your back. And if you didn't, you'd raise them and shrug and say, sorry, there's nothing I can do. There's none of that. That you rule. And if that was the only truth that we knew, it would be frightening. But we also know that those that you have saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, you love. And we know that you are good. And on these things that are true of you, we rest our hope.
in Jesus' name. Amen.